build some time into your daily schedule to just get lost in a place, maybe to take the subway to the last stop, a place where tourists don't go, uh, or to just wander without your damn phone out, uh, letting yourself get actually lost. I mean, I think one of the big problems with some types of travelers, not all, is that they only go to look at what I call dead things, which are things that were created by past generations. And your trip will be much richer when you get lost. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts, where I talk with experts, public figures, and interesting people about fascinating topics that meander off topic. Today, I talk with longtime guidebook publisher Pauline Fromer. The very name Fromer is a legendary one in guidebook circles, as you'll know if you've spent time traveling or even if you've just watched movies like this one. Jamie, can I borrow your Fromers? Oh, here it is, Bratislava. Huh. Capital of Slovakia. Oh, here's a fun fact. You made out with your sister, man! That's an outtake from the 2004 film Eurotrip, a silly if entertaining movie about a group of young people traveling on the continent with the help of a Fromer's guidebook. Fromer's was actually founded by Pauline's father, Arthur Fromer, back in 1957 with the publication of Europe on $5 a Day, which pioneered budget guidebooks for Americans. Now, more than 60 years later, guidebooks are no longer the exclusive travel resource they used to be, what with online and smartphone resources like TripAdvisor. So, in this episode, Pauline and I go meta and discuss the utility and nuance that guidebooks offer in the 21st century. Pauline is the creator of her own guidebook series for budget-conscious travelers, so she can speak to how guidebooks are used and designed, and how they compare to other travel resources. I'm actually a fan of travel guidebooks, and I think they're absolutely worth the investment, even as you use them in tandem with the travel apps and resources you use on your smartphone and online. Over the course of our conversation, Pauline and I offer strategies for making the most of travel guidebooks and how to choose the right one for your journey. We talk about how destinations market themselves these days and how to spot the influence of marketing and online travel advice. We talk about the recent boom in Chinese travelers worldwide and how it's affected destinations. And I tell my own story about discovering and using guidebooks for my own travels when I was just starting out. Now, regardless of how you plan your trip, be it with a guidebook or online tips or a combination of both, you're going to need airfare to your destination, or at least you will if it's on the other side of the world. And you'll need a bag to put your gear in, ideally a bag that allows you to pack light for the journey. And my longtime sponsors offer just that. Check out Airtrex at Airtrex.com to research and plan affordable multi-stop flight itineraries for vagabonding journeys. When I used an Airtrek itinerary to travel across Asia last winter, I carried everything I needed for three months in Tortuga's set-out pack. Check out rolfpotscom slash Tortuga to learn more about the set-out and a variety of other backpacks designed for the vagabonding traveler. And as usual, be sure to use the promo code DEVIATE if you want 10% off your order at checkout. For now, sit tight and listen as Pauline Fromer and I discuss the whys and hows of using a travel guidebook to plan and structure your journey. I'm curious, are are there any other multi-generational guidebook folks out there? Because your father, Arthur, sort of revolutionized guidebooks uh, a couple generations ago. Are there other people where guidebooks are the family business? You know, I don't know. I think maybe the fielding guides were started that way, but um, uh, do you want me to tell my dad's story just briefly? Sure, because I think, and this will tie into a question I have later, that I think there's a generation of travelers that just 
not only are they not totally tuned into the Arthur Fromer story, but they don't aren't really familiar with guidebooks as a as a uh, foundational resource in the internet. Age. Yeah. Oh, yeah. absolutely. You're right. Yeah. Well, so my father was uh, drafted into the army during the Korean War. And he had a great stroke of luck the day before he would have been sent to Korea, which was a really bloody, terrible war. In fact, half of the people he trained with didn't make it back. Um, So the day before he was going to be sent, they discovered that he spoke Russian and German. Uh, He was the son of immigrants who spoke those languages. He also studied them. And so instead of being sent to Korea, he was sent to Europe. And every bit of free time he had, he would go off and he would use military planes and he explored Europe. But he was kind of unique among his fellow GIs because it was right after World War II. Europe was in rubble and his fellow GIs were too scared uh, to get off the base and go around and look at things. And they felt that if they didn't have a lot of money, which they didn't, uh, they wouldn't be able to enjoy what they were seeing. And so when he got back to the base, he, he was always peppered with questions. And he thought, why don't I write a little book? And so he wrote a little book called The GI's Guide to Europe, self-published it, and it became a, 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 an overnight success in the army. And then about a year later, when he was out, Uh, He was working as a lawyer and he thought, well, maybe civilians will like this. And he wrote Europe on $5 a day. And it was kind of the first mainstream resource that told Americans that they didn't have to have a lot of money to see the world, uh, that they could, you know, do it on a budget and still have a great time. And so that was kind of revolutionary in terms of how people traveled. And were you, did you grow up then with a really keen sense for travel? Well, we spent half my childhood on the road because uh, my father had to update the book every summer. And so uh, I had, quote unquote, aunts and uncles all over Europe who owned cheap little pensions who we would see and stay with. And and, uh, so it's funny, I I always kind of dreaded it because I wanted to be home with my buddies. Uh, but uh, now I look back and think how lucky I was. Well, how did you make the transition into uh, into being a guidebook person yourself? Because I've I've known you for a while, and I know that you have experience as, a, as an, in acting, for example. Yeah. yeah. So, so what was your journey into being um, into having your own guidebooks? Yeah, I thought I wanted to be an actor. In fact, I toured the com- country with Les Mis and and did a lot of different shows and and commercials and that kind of stuff. And then uh, the internet came along, and I had always written. I was on the high school paper. I was on my college's paper. Uh, My dad would give me small assignments. But when the internet came along, nobody knew anything about it. And so you could have absolutely no experience and rise pretty quickly. And my father was asked by the folks who at that point owned the Fromer Guides to help them create Fromers.com. And he brought me in because he thought I was young and tech savvy. And I was the first editor of it. And I realized I was enjoying it more than I was enjoying the acting. And so I I made the switch. I was very lucky to get in on the ground floor when uh, when that was so new, when everybody was learning what that meant, what the internet was. So I I came to guidebooks in a backwards way. I, I was first a web person. 
That's interesting. You know, my career started with the advent of the internet too. Back in the dial-up era, I, I was writing narrative reportage from the road in about 98, 99, 2000. Um, and so I guess you were you were also in the business, but on the guidebook end at the time. And one thing about how technology has and continues to influence travel is that when I was traveling around Asia this winter, a lot of the younger travelers don't go first to a guidebook, but they go first to their phone, you know, or to right. the internet. And so since you've you've been doing this for, for more than 20 years now, what's it like to give travel advice in, in the year 2019? Well, it's funny. Uh, l- let me just say something first about uh, kids not going to guidebooks. I-, I was recently at the Book Passage Travel Writers Conference, which I think you've been at. It's a great conference. I, lo- I love that place. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, one of the participants said to me, you know, to go off the beaten path, I use a guidebook. <laughs> because wow. everybody, yeah, I because everybody else is staring at their phones, and you have these influencers who kind of make certain areas and even certain angles on areas because everybody apparently wants to take the same Instagram shot, not only see the thing, but take the exact same shot. Uh, so those areas are getting deluged with tourists. But guidebooks, we have hundreds of pages to fill. And so she found that she would find the places that really had the locals or that tourists didn't know about in the guidebook, which kind of turns it all on its head. But anyway... <laughs> It, it does. You know, I, I came of age as a travel writer around the time that Leonardo DiCaprio's The Beach was a big hit. <laughs> and I actually did a podcast about that recently. But the big discourse in that novel and later the movie is how guidebooks were actually flattening destinations. They were ruining destinations. They were sending all the youngsters there. And now it's yeah. so funny that there's an inversion of that. And this winter when I traveled, I went to Sumatra, which is an old part of the Banana Pancake Trail. And it, it was off the beaten path. You know, this place that, that the Lonely Planets of the World had made a part of the Banana Pancake Trail 20 years ago, mm-hmm. it is not yet on that Instagram influencer trail. People are going to Bali because it's so cheap right. to go there. And so um, I felt like I had Sumatra to myself along with a few other flinty-eyed backpackers. So what as, as someone giving travel advice, how does this affect how you operate as a guidebook uh, publisher? Well, we have to educate people about the the pros uh, as opposed to the cons of using guidebooks on using material that is journalistically prepared. Um, a lot of the influencers, a lot of the bloggers, what they're doing, um, not all, and there's some great ones out there, but, but some is disguised marketing. Mm. Uh, they are being sent to places to cover them. And if they give a bad review of a place, they won't be asked on the next press trip. And so there goes their livelihood. And a lot of them are also accepting money directly from the destination or the hotel or the restaurant that they're covering. Um, Any of the big name guidebooks, Fromer's Photos, Lonely Planet, Rick Steves, etc., none of us accept money from a venue to put them in a guidebook. That's just something we don't do. But we have to make that clear because a lot of um, travelers just assume everybody's on the take. Um, So I tell my guidebook writers, and I actually learned this from the guy who did the Hawaii Revealed Guides, he makes sure that his guides have both villains and heroes. 
in the way that they're written, you have to make it clear to the reader that you're on their side. You're not on the side of the destination necessarily. You can love it. You can gush about it. But you also have to include some things that go wrong in the destination or that aren't so savory so that the reader understands that you're not in the pay of anybody there. Um, So that's become a thing that we've become much more conscious of in terms of writing these books. Um, Also, part of the problem with guidebooks or part of the issue with doing them is you're dealing with a physical object. It can only be a certain length because you have to ship it places. And if it gets too long, it's it's heavy and that costs more. And then you have to charge more for the book, which isn't good. And it also makes it harder for people to carry. And even though all of our books are on eBooks and Fromers.com has all our material too, people who use guidebooks still use the physical product. So that means Unlike a trip advisor, we can't list every single hotel at a destination or every restaurant. We try to list all the top attractions and all the off the beaten path worthy ones too, but we have to be more curated. And so we are really working with our writers to make sure that our curation is smartly done so that it really reflects the zeitgeist of the destination. So when you take our advice for a hotel, you're going to be staying in a hotel that might have some bit of history to it or a place that that locals actually hang out in because they're cool restaurants and bars in the lobby or that in some way reflects the place. It's not just a place that somebody gave a thumbs up or thumbs down to. That was one thing that I enjoyed about guidebooks when I first started traveling. And actually, I was only vaguely aware of them until my sister gifted me a Let's Go guide like 26 (laughs) years ago. The old uh, uh, sort of youth travel guides out of Harvard. I didn't realize it at the time. But then the nice thing about any good guidebook is that it's not just it doesn't just tell you where the hotels are and where to eat, but it gives you cultural context. It gives you history. It gives you ecological context. Um, and so yep. one nice thing, and one thing I hope younger generations uh, don't forget is that it does give you this package that the odds that you're going to go online to a TripAdvisor and see if this hotel is is favorable or not are strong. But sure. the odds that you're going to go online and find out what the proper clothing to wear in a conservative country, you know, or, or to find out what happened in the colonial era of the 18th century that's still having effects today, you're less likely to independently look up that information, whereas the guidebook sort of packaged it together. And, you yeah. know, when I first started traveling... Um, uh, there was this this idea that the guidebooks and glossy magazines were a little bit corrupt in this idea of being too close to the travel marketers. And I think that this granular level internet era has shown that it's sort of audience driven, like the audience loves the travel fantasy so much mm. that maybe it's good to have some gatekeepers. And I, I'm not going to knock online advice, but I think sure. one should be careful about it. There was uh, a recent 60 Minutes piece on how there are people out there who are making a full living nowadays by posting fake reviews for 
for hotels, for restaurants, for non-travel products, you know, on Amazon.com, on TripAdvisor, on Yelp. And so while I think online review can be very helpful in that, say there's construction going on at your hotel, that's not something a guidebook could cover, you know, because it's temporary. Uh, So for those types of things, it can be very helpful, but you have to recognize that in many cases, you may not be taking advice from another traveler when you look at those review sites. Yeah, you know, um, I I mean, it's just like sometimes your political argument on Twitter might be with a bot, right? Exactly. Yeah. Sometimes the reviews aren't real. And then I uh, I posted a lot to Instagram this winter, and it was really fun, and I like Instagram, but it made me realize how so much of what we see on Instagram and so much of what people like on Instagram is 70% fictional maybe because when I post a picture from Sumatra with of a beautiful sunset over Lake Toba, then it might get 20 times more likes than a just as real experience from Sumatra that involves telephone wires and traffic jams, right? Haha, uh-huh, sure. Yeah, and, yeah. And and so it feels like there's there's a flattening of the way the conversation has happened. And, and 20 years ago, people, they, they sort of laid it at the feet of guidebooks and glossy magazines, when in fact, I think that people just like to read semi-fictional accounts of travel. So I guess the question for you is, how can we identify sort of the presence of marketing speak in online advice? And how do you as a guidebook publisher um, find ways of sidestepping that compromise uh, in a place where you might like the destination, but you're trying to uh, separate yourself from how it markets itself? That's a good question. Uh, And it's hard to do. I've had so many people tell me, oh, I can tell immediately uh, that when a review on TripAdvisor is faked. I don't think you can. Uh, so I think you have to look at your sources and, and know a little bit about them, unfortunately. You have to know the difference between journalism and not journalism. I mean, um, it's really, really hard to do. And in terms of what we ask our writers to do is, yeah, we, 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 tr- we try to get them to get away from marketing speech because we're so saturated with that. But that's also about being a good writer and not falling into cliches and uh, when we give advice, the key thing we want to do is my, my father always had a saying when he was editor in chief of budget travel magazine, which was, it's about the reader's experience, not yours. So while we really ask our writers to be incredibly opinionated so that it's not just, you know, somebody pulling their, uh, what's the word? It, so that it's not just somebody giving you the facts, ma'am, and you have to decipher if they actually think a place is worth going to or not. We also ask them to give enough telling details so that the reader can decide if this is for them. So in terms of reviewing, say, a famous maritime museum that is mostly about ships <laughs> and, uh, you know, bottles with ships in them and actual ship parts and maybe nautical charts. Now that's going to be catnip for people who love maritime history. But for somebody who doesn't have a deep interest to it, it could be a snooze and there might be a better place in the destination for them to go. And so you want to write it in such a way as you, you really give a picture of what it is and who it would be for. 
That, that's interesting. That I there's it's actually from my perspective as a travel writer, writer, not entirely enviable. Just the the pressure to capture in an in a in a economy of words yeah. places like why you should go to the Maritime Museum or even. Just the idea that you're in the field, you're at a restaurant that's supposed to be good, but but maybe the the kitchen got some bad meat in that week, you know, or maybe the mm-hmm. air conditioner at the museum is broken, and so do you have tips for your writers on on just how to navigate the the a world that is way more complex that can be captured in a guidebook? Well, unlike other guidebooks, we only hire like local writers. Hmm. So, uh, or not only, we have a couple of what I call parachute artists who are really, really talented and can dive into a destination and get the zeitgeist and get what they should say. But the majority of our writers are based in the destination. So if the museum's air conditioner is broken, they might say, you know, I'm not, un- I'm not enjoying this because of the air conditioning. Why don't I abort and come back? Um, or they might give, uh, it might be a restaurant they've tried several times uh, before they put the review in the book. Um, we feel that we give better information, more local information, when we use locals. And so we, we do that whenever possible. Like I write the New York City book. Um, and so uh, my teenagers giggle when they come home and I'm taking a nap because they know that that means I'm doing nightlife. Uh, that week. And I'll be out from like midnight till about four in the morning, uh, being the oldest person (laughs) at a variety (laughs) of clubs and bars and restaurants, but I love it. And, um, you know, and I'll go to places often a couple of times to figure out uh, whether or not they're worthy of recommendation. That's another interesting perspective. And I'm curious to know for you and other guidebook writers, how does one, from like your position, write for someone who might be a 23-year-old guy from Idaho or, you know, a, a, a 77-year-old woman from Arizona? How do, how do you achieve a sort of balance and universality in what you write about? Well, I'll give you an example in terms of hotels. I have to review all of the uh, hotels in New York City, which is a lot of places. And so when I'm there, I try to look at them through the lens of who would this be right for? Hmm. So I'll look at a place and I'll realize, oh my goodness, right across the street is a playground. And wow, this hotel has a lot of rooms with uh, uh, ante rooms where you could put a little cot and the parents could get some, and and this would be perfect for families because parents could get some, or I'll look at another place and realize, oh, everything is on one level and there's not many steps and um, the people are really, really feel, they, they, they make this hotel feel like a family. You get the feeling of kindliness when you're here. This might be better for older travelers who might have mobility impairments. So I try and put myself in the mindset of different travelers, often because I have to cover so many of the same types of things. Um, cause ultimately hotels aren't that different from one another. Huh. Some are, a couple are. But really, you have to go in and find out what makes this hotel different from the next one. It's obviously going to be location. It's going to be how quiet it is, because you always want quiet for sleep, how good the beds are. There are certain things you have to check off the list. But then there are, in, there are intangible things um, that make a place better for honeymooners, say, uh, than it would be for a couple who's been married 30 years and won't care if somebody's in the next room overhearing them. (laughs) 
I, I wonder if, if you find that certain people are attracted to your guidebooks, because in our exchange before this uh, interview, you, you made an interesting point, which is that Lonely Planet books are the way that they are because they're out of Australia. And when Australians, far more than Americans, will go on sort of a, a one-year gap year, because Australia is so isolated. And so Lonely Planets, for example, are really geared towards long-term travel, which could explain why I use Lonely Planet when I first did my big Asia long-term travel, much like I did use Let's Go when I was 23 years old and doing my first USA travel. So um, how... I can tell, I mean, each each guidebook series is very different from the next. Uh, so for example, as you said, Lonely Planet was written for Australians originally. So it tries to be really, really complete. It has every single little small town in it with at least one restaurant review, one hotel review. Now those ho reviews are going to be much shorter, uh, whereas Fromer's was written for U.S. citizens. That was who our audience has always been. And we have a dearth of vacation time. We take very few vacations. And so we want to make sure that we are spending our time wisely. And so if a small town is not that interesting, might just be a waypoint, we'll say that. We won't really cover it. We'll, and we'll say you, you want to spend your time here instead of there. Uh, Fodor's. And we have local writers, as I said, and we only use one writer per destination because that's how our, we evolved. It was my father's voice giving advice on everything, on, you know, hotels, restaurants, everything. Fodor's uses different people within the destination and prides itself on that its people are all experts in their narrow slot. So you'll have one person doing the sightseeing, one person doing the restaurants, another person doing nightlife, all mixed in one chapter. Uh, and their voices then are kind of judged by their editors. Hmm. And so I, I find photos a little bit less appealing because I like the personal touch of Fromers, but of course I do Fromers, but other people like the photos approach. Um, Probably Rick Steves is, is like ours. I know he says that he's been inspired by my father, and he wrote the original uh, Rick Steves, although I think it's an open secret that he has people helping him update them. Um, what other? Moon. Moon is very interesting because all of the writers on Lonely Planet, Fodor's, Fromer's, it's work for hire. Moon, the guides are copyrighted, by the authors. And so every single moon guide is written from scratch by that author until they don't write that destination anymore. And sometimes that means you get a very good guide. And sometimes that means you get a not as good guide, I find, uh, because um, there's a standards issue with their guides. Uh, but it's people who are very invested. It's, a, it's an interesting uh, uh, way of doing it. Yeah, I remember I used a lot of moon guides in Latin America um, because that, it just felt like there was a lot of moon expertise in Latin America. And, you know, it, it's interesting. You're talking about having sort of a point of view like your father had in, in his books. I remember back in the day when that w uh, there was sort of a complaint about travelers. Like if somebody didn't like something about the Lonely Planet Guide, they would literally complain about Joe Cummings, who wrote the Lonely Planet Guide, <laughs> right? 
Right. Um, and now, now I don't think the, the single author guides are much rarer. So it's funny how I think at the end of the day, travelers, and maybe I'm included in this, sort of like to complain about something. <laughs> and, and, and there's, <laughs> yeah. there's no silver bullet solution. And I think there's something very elegant and charming about a point of view guidebook, which used to people used to complain about, but now is rarer, but also very interesting that you have a single person who's guiding you through this destination. Well, we think it it helps because we we think if you read it and you know that you trust this person when it comes to restaurants, they'll probably you'll probably also trust their taste when it comes to museums. We ask a lot of our authors. We expect them to be real Renaissance people and be able to write about very different topics. Um, so we're 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 proud of our writers. We think we have some of the best people uh, on the planet writing our guides and we're very grateful to them they're they're great people and great writers now, they often came from local magazines huh. and newspapers that's how i find new writers i i look at who it used to be who writes for them and nowadays it's who used to write for them yeah magazines closing yeah a, a, a strange relic you know um and i was just i was just talking about the the off the sometimes fickleness of travelers who use these guidebooks uh be they 20 years ago or now um and i don't want to complain about that because we're we're all sort of consumers of travel in a certain sense and so i'm curious to know based on your experience and especially your experience in recent years what do travelers want what are their concerns these days what are they looking for well, that's interesting. So we have the guidebooks and we have fromers.com. And fromers.com has all of the guide material up there for free. Uh, we also cover recent events in travel and trends in travel. And every year I do a trend story and then I uh, try and get it out to our writers so that they can keep these trends in mind. Uh, and there's some really fascinating new things going on, uh, one of which is something that you kind of pioneered that's become more and more popular, which is endless travel, being a real living the life as a nomad. Hmm. Um, you know, you're, you're seeing more and more people, thanks to the ability to work remotely on uh, thanks to our computers, are, are making travel their lifestyle. And uh, so that's a new group that we hadn't written for in the past that we really have to keep in mind uh, when we're doing our travel coverage, because that's a growing number of people. And there are people who are uh, looking at travel and looking at ways to work. Uh, so there are new websites, not so new, but fairly new, like Woof, like WorkAway.com, where employers post jobs and in return for a set amount of work each day for usually just the week, not the weekend, uh, you get full room and board. And that that's allowed lots of travelers to get out and see the world in very different ways than they could in the past, including my daughter. My daughter, for her gap year, just took off for Japan and worked all over Japan. My favorite thing she sent us was a photograph of herself. I'm probably going to frame it and put it in the bathroom of her with a big grin on her face, cleaning a toilet at a Japanese inn. <laughs> this is a kid who never cleaned a toilet at home. Uh, but, you know, she had this amazing life changing experience that we didn't have to pay for that she went and she worked and, and saw the world that way. So that's opening up travel in new ways. 
That's that's exciting, I think, and especially for young travelers, because again, I was young in a different era of of media, and I remember discovering Transitions Abroad magazine, if you remember hmm. that. Yeah. And um, it had a work section. Every issue of Transitions Abroad had work and volunteer opportunities, and so I was really excited about that. And now we have this this digital nomad movement, um, which I actually gave a talk on in, in Kazakhstan this summer. They asked me to talk about digital nomadism, so. I did some preparation for the talk, and I Googled the uh, the Wikipedia site, and there my name was. Like, as a, <laughs> wow! As an early digital nomad, that was that was sort of fun to see. Um, but it is it is a thing. Like demographically, it's it makes more and more sense. It's easier and easier, not just to clean to clean Jap- uh, toilets in Japan if you want, or work at a hostel, or work at at Wolf, which is willing workers on organic farms. Is that exactly? Yes, right. Yeah, but yeah. also to take your graphic design job with you, or take your consulting job with you, um, and so it really well, has changed how people have traveled. And I'm curious to know if you've if you have um, catered to that demographic at all as a guidebook publisher uh well we're we're trying to now absolutely yes this is this was a memo sent out about mm, probably three years ago now saying this is really a group we have to take into account so do look at their needs other things we're seeing um the late great anthony bourdain really drove home how important food is in terms of interpreting cultures and we're seeing much more foodieism <laughs> at every level, whether you whether it means street foods or trying the great restaurants of the world uh, or taking cooking classes. We're just seeing this explosion in food experiences in just the last couple of years in tours that are geared around food in in individual experiences you can just pick up. And so that was another memo to our authors, not to omit this from our guides, to search out some of the more interesting experiences that were, were uh, available to people, because that's something that travelers are, are kind of obsessed with right now. Hmm. What, what else is having a moment right now? What, other, what else is on travelers' minds, and are they seeking out on the road these days? Well, sadly, uh, we're, we're dealing with over-tourism uh, nowadays. Uh, too many places are really just being loved to death. I mean, the other day, the Louvre had to close because it was overrun with visitors. Wow. And uh, so briefly, they, they put in a system, I'm not sure if it's going to be permanent, but of timed entry to the Louvre to get in. Uh, and so uh, people are becoming more aware of that. Uh, interestingly, one of the reasons for this over-tourism, it's more tourism from every single nation, but we're seeing a lot more Chinese travelers. In fact, they are the single largest group of travelers nowadays. Uh, after years of their government not allowing them to leave the country, there, I think there was this pent-up hunger among that population, and they're really getting out there and seeing the world. And because statistically they spend twice as much uh, on average as other travelers, the industry is really catering to their needs. Uh, so you're seeing a lot of hotels designed specifically for Chinese travelers and not just in Asia, in the United States, in Europe, elsewhere. And you can tell it's for Chinese travelers because the, the lobbies are now a maze of shops because when, Ch- when Chinese people go abroad, it's considered bad uh, manners if they don't bring back gifts for 
everybody in their close circle, family and friends. And so they have to do a lot of shopping. Uh, You're seeing bars being replaced by tea bars. You're seeing feng shui being used in in the hotel design. Um, And so this is, is something interesting for people to be aware of when they're going around. And so it's one of the trends we're covering. Yeah, I think that there's probably like 20 people who, if they started right now, could could do PhD theses on the different aspects of the rise of Chinese tourism. Because in a sense, one, it's just numerically just there's so many more Chinese people than, say, American people. Yeah, yeah. But, but they're going through this growth of the middle class phase, which sort of happened to Americans around the time that your father was doing his pioneering work in the guidebook industry. Absolutely. And, yeah. And giving Americans an alternative to the normal assumptions of travel. And so it'll be really interesting to see like who the, the, the Chinese Arthur Fromer will be and, <laughs> and how they adapt and how other people adapt in this environment where pe- just like just like people, I think, were annoyed by American travelers and probably still are when, yeah. they, when they arrived on the scene. Just like what things like when Chinese travelers are being being irritating without even realizing that they're being irritating. I just think that this is a, an endlessly fascinating topic. Yeah, no, it, it is. It is. And and bless them. I'm thrilled that they get to travel now. I mean, you know, this was a country that under Mao was a real authoritarian regime. Uh, and there still is, as we've seen with the Hong Kong protests, still big problems in that country with authoritarianism. I don't want to make light of that. Uh, but at least that population is now getting out and getting to see the world. And, and I'm, I'm thrilled for them. And so far as I can tell, they're not like I spend every summer in Paris, at least one month. And um, I think Chinese people are mixing in with everybody else. About 10 years ago, they were, you were more likely to see Chinese groups with a, a, a right. one leader with a flag waving in front of them. And so I think it's just part of the evolution of, of middle class travel that you start a little bit awkward, a little bit hyper organized. And then slowly these populations become more savvy. And there's no there's no arguing with the fact that the Chinese economic influence alone is going to change things. One thing that I've read in the context of Chinese travel is, for example, like Maya Beach in Thailand or uh, certain beaches in, in, in Cambodia that are really being overwhelmed by this mm. tourism. So yeah. regardless of whether or not we're talking about the Chinese market or just any market, what are the, the dangers and fallouts when you have destinations that are overtouristed? Well, uh, I don't know if it's danger. Well, it's dangers. Yeah, it's dangers for the local ecosystems. I mean, there are certain places that are just being overrun, where uh, the locals can no longer afford to live because so many apartments are being taken out of the apartment stock and turned into uh, rentals. Um, there are you may not be treated as nicely as a tourist because the locals are fed up with you. You know, they're just feeling bombarded by outsiders. Um, so that those are the issues and why you have to do some advanced planning, i.e. read a guidebook and uh, find out what high season is and avoid it. And maybe uh, if you're going to a certain area, maybe go to the so-called lesser known sites. Like if you're going to Barcelona in high season, maybe spend a good amount of time in Girona and in the other parts of Catalonia that are fascinating and have wonderful museums and cuisine and ancient Roman ruins and lots to see and do. But 
are slightly less touristed than Barcelona itself. Um, so there, there, there are ways you can you can avoid those things. It's it's it, it, there's so many different trends right now. Another big trend is a lot of the travel industry is getting into the activities field. And I wondered when I saw this, is this kind of like the Airbnb effect? Because what Airbnb did to the travel industry is it introduced a lot of people who weren't professional hoteliers into the hospitality industry. So they were people who had an extra apartment or who had an extra room and they and just their numbers exploded and you had a lot of people learning on the job what hospitality meant. And I wondered, are we seeing so many more activities online through Airbnb experiences, through tours by locals, through a whole slew of new websites? Does that mean that more quote unquote, amateurs are becoming professionals and and putting out tours? Or are we just seeing more coverage of the tours that already exist? And I've found it's about half and half. You go to Airbnb experiences, half the tours there are things that have been around for decades. Uh, But they're just on that site. They're just getting new eyes through that new platform and other new platforms. And then there are there are probably the other half that are genuinely new experiences that are being offered to travelers. I have a friend who was a producer on a news show in New York for many years, lost her job, and now uh, she's inviting people into her kitchen in Brooklyn. She's a brilliant chef. She takes them to the Brooklyn Co-op so they see how that works. Uh, they go shopping together. They cook together. And she's a fascinating person because of her news background and just who she is. So it's going to be a wonderful, very unique experience that wouldn't have existed five years ago. Now, five years ago, of course, she was also a news producer. She lost her job because of the downturn in journalism. So maybe she wouldn't have to have been doing this. So, you know, there's two sides to this coin. Uh, But it's interesting. So I'm telling our guidebook writers, let people know what the good tours are and that don't assume that it's a more unique or authentic tour if you see it on this platform or that platform. And also the thing is with these tours, they have to pay a hefty chunk of change to be on these internet platforms. So often if you know to go directly to the tour operator, you're going to pay much less. And so I'm having our guidebook writers cover that Uh, Because I took a cooking class in Paris at a place that had been around for decades. I thought from the Airbnb experience uh, description that I was going to somebody's home and I get there and I'm at a professional kitchen. And uh, I realized if I had booked directly with that kitchen, I would have saved a good 30 euros. Huh. Yeah, it feels like um, it's this has made everything very complex. You know, it used to be that you had sort of a time-honored operator in a place like Paris who, because they'd been around for 20 years, you knew that they probably weren't a fly-by-night operation. Um, But now you have these, it's a much more complicated situation. I have a former student in Paris who gives really great personalized Paris tours. He's only been doing it for, you know, three or four years, uh, but it's really good. And, And so I think there are people like him or people like your friend who invites people into their kitchen who are sort of new to it. Right. Um, and then, and then, it's it's really hard to tell the difference on a on you know online between that person and the person who just woke up two weeks ago and decided that they were going to do tours as well. So. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah. No, it's it's a very it's a brave new world. And also the pricing can really be a problem because as I said before, I hope this was all clear. I know it's a little muddled and I can't really I've been trying to write about this and it's very hard to cover because it's there's no one thing that's happening. But really going direct to the tours rather than on these platforms can literally save you forty percent. I mean it's it's amazing how much these tour operators are having to bump up their uh, rates to pay off the platforms they're on. Yeah, it's so complicated, too. I remember being a backpacker and always opting for the cheapest version of the trail guide, you know, or, or the, <laughs> the city the city cooking tour. When And, and usually that meant that I just had – I wasn't saving money. I was just getting the worst possible option. <laughs> whereas whereas right. now you have that situation where you're, you're scraping out the, the layers of middlemen and maybe getting a better choice. And one thing about, you know, you're talking about over-touristed destinations. I know that, that Barcelona, for example, has had a problem with that. Venice has had a problem with that. Bali has had a problem with that. But it just, it goes back to that old um, tourist axiom of getting off the beaten path. And it feels like you can have just as interesting of a Catalonian experience in adjacent areas to Barcelona or, a, you know, just as interesting... Um, Indonesian experiences like I had this winter in in other islands of of Indonesia. So it feels like now more than ever, just being willing to get off of that tourist lockstep Instagram influencer ideal picture circuit and try a new version of what everybody else is doing is a great strategy. Yeah. Well, Rolf, did you see that the Indonesian government has announced they're going to try and create 20 new Bali's, that they are going to be putting money into creating new resort areas in other parts of Indonesia. It's kind of like what the Mexican government did. It created Cancun. It actually had computer engineers look at Mexico and figure out what would be a great resort destination. And then it gave tax breaks to large hotels and it basically built an airport in the middle of the jungle thinking if we build it, people will come. And that's what started Cancun. Uh, and Indonesia is trying to do that in 20 places in Indonesia in the coming years. Strange, very odd times. It is. And, it, you know, it makes sense because there's, you know, Indonesia is like 17,000 islands. And, and, you know, I was in Sumatra, which is the size of California and didn't run into mm -hmm. too many other travelers this winter. But, you know, anything centrally planned makes you a little bit nervous, you know, like how yeah. is this going to be executed? So it'll be interesting to come back in 20 years and see what's happened. What's become of that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious to know, besides over tourism, what kinds of, of traps and challenges do travelers find themselves up against often in an unexpected way in a year like 2019? Well, you know, everybody always wants to pay the correct amount and it can be that there's no such thing in the travel industry. It's really a an industry that's based on what the market will bear. Uh, and so um, you really have to look at what is actually going to save you money. So, for example, New York City is one of the most expensive cities in the world in terms of hotel rates. And so a lot of people uh, have been trying to save money by uh, looking at packages, uh, which is 
putting together air uh, when a company puts together air and hotel and sells it to you for a discounted rate. And when we were working on our Cancun guidebook, speaking of Cancun again, we found that people who bought packages to Cancun saved on average 30% over those who booked the hotel and the airfare separately, just because there's such a super competitive competitive atmosphere in Cancun between hoteliers that they wanted to fill their rooms and they would be willing to discount to do it, but they had to hide how much they would be willing to discount. And they could do that in an air hotel package where it's unclear how much is the airfare and how much is the hotel room. So I thought we might see something like that in New York, but it turned out no. Uh, For 50% of the packages I saw, you ended up paying more by buying a package through Expedia, through vacations to go, through, through, through different not vacation, pleasant holidays, um, through different sites than you would have buying those things separately. So there's no rule of thumb there. Sometimes people just assume that certain methods of travel will always pay off. And we've, and uh, after God, hours of looking at pricing, it was a really boring research job. But I, you know, <laughs> I spent about a week doing it because uh, I'm the author of the New- Frommer's Easy Guide to New York City. Um, and uh, it, it was eye-opening because uh, I just I assumed that packages would be cheaper, and I found that no, they actually aren't for New York. Uh, so I don't know if that answered your question, but uh, well, those it, are some of the things we look at. It created a new question in the context of how I traveled 20 years ago, which is, and granted, I was a backpacker 20 years ago, but I would go to a place in Cambodia or Thailand or India, and I would just show up on a street with several hotels and and look at rooms and bargain around, and I would invariably get the best deal by showing oh, up. Oh, absolutely. Um, and so I'm, I'm curious to know, in an age when it's so easy to book in advance and to do your comparison shopping, like you can do, you can comparison shop 20 hotels online, whereas comparison shopping 20 hotels in person is harder to do but i'm curious to know is it still possible is that still done showing up and finding your hotel and bargaining for your hotel in person or is that sort of a relic of another age it depends on where you're going i think it's still a great idea if you can in less touristed destinations but you go to a barcelona in high season you go to a venice in high season you may not it, it, it could be harder to find a place to go. And remember, it's not just hotels anymore. It's also Airbnb and VRBO and HomeAway and, and those other options. Um, that actually has made it easier to get deals at hotels. Um, uh, there are There's just so much more short-term housing available to travelers that uh, high season rates around the world are not sticking the way they used to. Uh, Hotels are having to bargain more than they used to just because they have so much competition from rentals. Um, But uh, sure, if you can just show up in a destination that day, you're always going to get the cheapest rate because the the hotelier is is desperate. That that unsold room is lost money for them. Uh, But a lot of people are too nervous about it. And as I said, because of over tourism, that won't work in certain places, I think it would be a little risky in certain places. 
Yeah, I think it's there's no silver bullet too. There's it's sort of a moving target because I went to I had booked a trip to take my nephew and my sister to Iceland a couple of years ago, and my strategy was just you know show up last minute booking if not in person booking, and then suddenly Iceland blew up in the in the oh yeah in, in the summer of 2017 in part because of budget airlines, and suddenly. I was still three months out, and I found myself really, really paranoid. And so I, I did a lot of booking, and oftentimes I would find like the last Airbnb, you know, within ten miles of where I wanted to be that night. And so, it's, uh, it's, it's one of those things where you think a strategy will work for one place, and then suddenly it's the hottest destination in Europe, and and your old strategy doesn't work as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I'm curious, just to wrap things up a bit. Um, just just for my listeners who might be dreaming about a certain destination and not wanting to go necessarily to an over-touristed place, but wanting to get the most out of a place, wanting to, um, to plan in a wise way, um, what sort of process you might recommend for them? And, and, you know, obviously you can recommend your own guidebooks, but in, in, the big, <laughs> in the big picture sense, for somebody who is maybe listening to this and dreaming about a trip that might take place in three to 12 months, what process would you um, recommend they get in, in the ball rolling for now to, to sort of maximize the pleasure of that trip? I think it's great to go to a place that inspires you. So if you're a home cook, for example, go to Bologna in Italy, which is uh, the place where Italians themselves consider to have the best food in Italy. If you're really into art, uh, you know, or if you're very into Buddhism, you know, consider going to a place where you could visit a lot of temples. I think, I don't know if this is really the answer you're looking for. It's so hard to pick destinations, to be honest with you. Um, I think looking at really what floats your boat and then preparing for that trip in a way that's going to enhance your life. There was once a study done about travel and and how it affects our happiness. And they looked at whether people were happier before a trip, during a trip, or after a trip. Sadly, there seems to be no bump in happiness after the trip. People are home, they're dealing with an overload of emails they haven't answered, they're back to work, they're not feeling any happier. They're, they are slight, they're happier while on the trip, but the biggest bump in happiness is before the trip happens, hmm. because you never can be disappointed by expectations. And you're dreaming about something. And I think I think welcoming tra- travel into your daily life before the trip is a wonderful life enhancement. So, you know, before I went to India, I read Salman Rushdie's Midnight's Children, which is a great novel about a guy who's born the same day that the modern state of India is and how his life parallels that of the country. And I, I watched books set in India and I went out to local restaurants and had different types of Indian food. And I dreamed of India for a couple of months before I went there. And I think I had a happier life because of it. And I think my my actual trip was richer because I had read about history. I had read about the culture. So I, I brought myself to it rather than expecting somebody there to be able to explain it to me. And I read guidebooks too. 
I like the idea that the trip begins now in a way that, and also the trip doesn't end when you come home, you know, that you can continue to, to read those books and keep an eye out for your old destination on the news. Oh, um, yeah. Just one thing, though, like for the people who might be nervous that the Taj Mahal is going to be full of 500 Instagrammers or that, <laughs> or that they've dreamed of Berlin, but they're afraid that Berlin might just sort of be overrun. Um, for those people who are feeling a little bit of anxiety about that, what are some strategies to help them sidestep the obvious in those places that they dream about but don't completely know about? Well, you want to build some time into your daily schedule to just get lost in a place, maybe to take the subway to the last stop, a place where tourists don't go, uh, or to just wander without your damn phone out. Uh, letting yourself get actually lost. I mean, I think one of the big problems with some types of travelers, not all, is that they only go to look at what I call dead things, which are things that were created by past generations. And your trip will be much richer when you get lost and look at a contemporary neighborhood and wander into a grocery store and talk to people, ask for directions, uh, you know, just chat with people. I mean, that everybody always, I'm lucky enough that I got to travel with my children. And so some of the best travel experiences I had was hanging out in playgrounds with them because it meant I got to meet local families and chat and learn about life, what life was really like in a non-forced situation. So if you can put yourself in those types of situations when you travel, you'll have a much richer experience. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including links to all of Pauline Fromer's travel recommendations, including her own guidebook series, can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com slash deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Justin Glow. Cedar Van Tassel does the theme music. Jan Futterman does the show notes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. (laughs) 